Would you bow your heads with me? Healer and restorer, in you alone we take our refuge. We seek safety in the truth of your word this morning, for it does not return void. We confess to the foolishness of allowing our fears to consume us and draw us away from you. Be with those currently suffering from the imperfections of their human condition, whether it be in their bodies, in their minds, or within their souls. Comfort them with the knowledge that they are loved by you and that none of our troubles take you by surprise. Cause us this morning to consider the past and how each day you've supplied us with what is sufficient when we start to worry about the future. We will not lose heart. We will not cease worshiping you. We will not keep quiet, for we are assured that you will be as faithful to us as you have been to those throughout all of history. You will return to vindicate your sovereignty. This should convict us and encourage us to be steadfast in our love for you. All of the kingdoms of this world will come to an end, but yours will endure forever. King Jesus, you were ascended on high, seated on your throne. Instill in us fear of our own pride and arrogance. Train us to be humble and submitted to your will and to your authority. To you, King Jesus, our Lord and Savior, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. 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 It's good to be with you. Welcome to 2021. It's hard to believe that we're already here, but I'm thankful that we have this technology to be able to meet with you uh, online, uh, even though we can't gather together. And as I was saying um, to the folks that are here, <clears throat> that we were praying together beforehand, while this isn't church, uh, this is definitely the next best thing, and so we're thankful for it. And I also appreciate the flexibility of all the folks in the church and your understanding this week uh, as we just try to be wise um, about caring for our church. So Lord willing, uh, our plan is to be gathering back in person again next week. And while I would have much rather presented today's teaching to you in person, uh, because it's the introduction of Daniel, again, this is the next best thing. And for some of you, this might actually be a blessing because there's going to be a lot of information. Um, uh, whenever we hit the beginning of a book, there always is. And so we're going to be going through the information pretty in depth. And so if you need to, you can always pause me and come back and, and uh, take more notes later. Um, and so... That's what we're going to be doing today. Now, you might be wondering, why did we choose to walk through Daniel next after Mark? Let me answer that question with a quick story. On September 11th, 2001, uh, I flew into a small airport in Bergen, Norway, and stepped off the plane to find a world in complete disarray. I'd come to play professional basketball for a club called the Ulrican Eagles, and I found myself in this foreign nation uh, among completely different people and culture and worldview, surrounded by what seemed like the end of the world. And I felt completely horrible, horrible uh, in, in terms of being just alone. In my short-lived experience on this earth by that point, just barely 22 years, I had never felt anything like it. And the team, uh, on top of everything else, wasn't able to pay my contract right away, and the coach was turning out to be a hard man to work with, and so hopelessness started to set in. 
I quit the team in protest and uh, was waiting to go back. Unfortunately, I didn't even have my own place to stay. I was staying with the coach in his attic. And all the flights at the same time didn't give me a way out because they were canceled back into the U.S. And so I had to stay in his home until flights began again. Now, sequestered to my room, I didn't know what else to do to pass the time because this was the day uh, before cell phones were really popular. I didn't have a cell phone with me. And so there I was stuck in the room. And so I began reading a Bible that my sister had sent with me. And the message that I received was one of peace and hope and strength. That even in the world that was going crazy around me, and the apocalyptic rumors that were flying at the time, for those of you that were old enough to remember, I could hope in God and his ultimate plan for the world. Now, this enabled me in that moment to endure in a way that I had never known before in my life. Now, it's for this same reason that I want to take us through the book of Daniel. As we will see, it was given during a time of exile to a people whose greatest cry was, how long, O Lord, how long do we have to stay in this situation? And it was given to them to be a beacon of hope to a weary people. It was given to be a beacon of hope to a weary people. And so this is what I have entitled the sermon today, the introduction to Daniel, a beacon of hope to a weary people. I pray that it can be that same beacon of hope to us in 2021, to a people weary of chaos and evil and paranoia that we see around us. And I hope that even today we can start to understand that and see it. So let's jump right in and take a look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, we're not going to go much further than that this morning. We're going to just pause right there, because these short verses begin by helping us to get our bearings for the entirety of the book. So let's look at the historical and biblical context that's presented here. Just in these short verses, in these few words, we start to understand a background to the book of Daniel that's going to be extremely important to us as we go through. Now, the book itself can be broken down largely in a structure of two parts. First, you have the first six chapters that are what are called court tales, and those are about Daniel and his friends. And then the second half is six chapters of prophetic visions that Daniel has himself. They're visions of Daniel. And so this is how we break it down in general. And, and next week, I'll break it down even further than that using the linguistic structure. But here in chapter one, the author opens the book by giving us a short synopsis of where to locate the events of this book and the life of Daniel in the midst of all the other events of Scripture. Now, as good Bible students, we want to make sure that we're not taking each individual book and kind of pulling it out of the context of the rest of the story. So the first thing we want to do is we want to look at it in a helpful way, which is within the meta narrative of Scripture itself, looking at all the events, the major events of the biblical narrative. Now, you could insert any number of events here, but I've kind of broken it down in an easy way for us to understand. From the creation account, Genesis takes us forward to show the ongoing depravity of mankind that ends with the flood. 
We're then introduced to the offspring of Noah. And if you'll turn with me really quickly, why don't you turn to the book of Genesis, and we're going to take a look at what happens right after the flood and why this has to do with Babylon. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 10. It is hard not to hear pages turning, by the way, for those of you that are at home. Genesis 10, and we're going to look at verse 9. Here in this table of nations, we're introduced to a man. Let's take a look at it. It says here, uh, it says that Cush, in verse 8, fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And look at verse 9. It says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And you can see that L-O-R-D is in caps, and that means that Yahweh is behind it. And therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, we're introduced to this guy, Nimrod, randomly in the middle of this table of nations, and unlike the other folks, he has a little bit of additional information given. It says that he is the first of the great men, or Gibor in the Hebrew. In other words, he was the prototype of kings that would rule through violence and lift themselves and their kingdoms above God and his kingdom. He was the prototype for earthly leaders and kings that still go on today. We can see it all around us, even, as I'll show you, within our own presidents. And this was the prototype. This was the first one that would rule earth, not in the way God desired, but in the way that man desired. It was a perversion of the original design in the garden where man was to be the subregion under the authority of God. But instead, Nimrod decided he was going to have authority above God and usurp that authority for himself. Now, notice what the start of his kingdom is. It goes on there in verse 10. It says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, uh, Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. Now that should immediately be ringing some bells for us. It was in a particular place, the land of Shinar, that we are then introduced to a story about the whole earth joining together. If you fast forward there to Genesis 11, you're going to see this idea of the Tower of Babel. Now, this is just an artist's renderings of what would most likely the, the Tower of Babel might look like. It was a ziggurat, and you can still find uh, ziggurats or archaeological finds that show what ziggurats would look like over in the Middle East. This is from Iraq, and it is the uh, base of one of those ziggurats, one of the largest ziggurats, quite near the home of who we know as Abraham. And so this ziggurat was, was uh, built in the land of Shinar, and Genesis 11 gives us that. Uh, take a look there at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 10. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord, Yahweh, came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, they're not doing good things, and they're going to continue to sin. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord, Yahweh, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord, Yahweh, confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth." 
Now, this was the temple in which the top was pressed into the heavens, not as we would know in our scientific knowledge today, but it was higher than anything else around it. And so it was pressed into the heavens so that their belief was that the pagan gods could descend down and come to join with man. Because remember, since Genesis 3, our desire as humankind was to once again join with God. But rather than rely on God and his sovereignty and his goodness to find the way to redeem us, mankind was trying to grasp it themselves even in the midst of their unrepentant sin. So the irony is in full play here that the God from Genesis 1 and 2, the God that wanted to walk with mankind in the cool of the day, that wanted to be the provider, he's so far removed because of their sin that he had to come down into this scene where mankind was trying to make a name for themselves. Now, to you and I, this idea of making a name for oneself is very, very much a part of the American dream. I remember reading this in the past and thinking, what's the big deal? They're making a tower. They're making a name for themselves. For us, it makes no sense that this is so horrible. But to the Israelite, this was a massive offense. Out of reverence for the Creator God, Israelites would not pronounce his name as I do, right? The, if an Israelite is listening to me online, when I say the name behind the word Lord, there is an offense because I could be taking it in an irreverent way. Um, but rather than do that, what Israelites would do is they would say Adonai, which is the word Lord, which is why we translate it into Lord in the English, uh, speaking of his authority, or they would call him Hashem. And Hashem means the name. Now, we as humans only have a name in so much as we are made in the image of God and he has given us a name. You might think for a second of a random statement that Paul makes in Ephesians 3, 14 through 15. Paul, an Israelite, says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he says uh, kind of a nickname for the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's the source of our identity, of who we are, of our names. And this statement in Genesis 11, saying that they were trying to make a name for themselves, is a blatant proclamation that mankind was trying to remove God from the picture and place ourselves onto his throne and have him be subservient to us. It was an act of what we would call high treason. Punishable by what? What is the punishment for high treason? It's the wages of sin. It's death. But even in the midst of this high treason, God is still at work. He's still delaying and slowing down their sin. But even then, look at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, these are the generations of Shem. Interesting. What does Shem mean? We just said it to say Hashem means the name. Shem means name. God was making a people and, and using a people to proclaim his name. And he was starting with Shem. Now, from Shem came a family in what is called Ur of the Chaldeas, or the Chaldeans. And this is where we go straight into Genesis 12. And I know I'm going quickly here, but I'm trying to give you a real quick rundown of this idea of why Babel and Babylon is so important. Now, Ur, where Abraham and his family were originally from, was to Babel and Babylon what Salem is to Portland. They're extremely close in geographic proximity. And so the author is making clear that it was from this original rebellious people in Genesis 11 that Abram is called out. He's called to leave all of the people, the culture, the family, the connections. Take a look at Genesis 12, 1 through 4. It says, Now the Lord said, Yahweh said to Abram, Go home, or excuse me, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
Notice that theme of name. He's God, the one who's the source of all names, is making the name of Abram great. Abram isn't trying to do it on his own, like Nimrod or any of the people making the Tower of Babel. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And so we see the beginning of the Israelite people here. These people of Abram, soon to be called Abraham, would then go through and they would go along this timeline that I showed you earlier. They would enter into eventually this place uh, in Egypt after pursuing food in the midst of a famine and they would be enslaved there and God would have to redeem them and pull them out. The God of the Exodus saves them and they go into the wilderness wanderings. And then they go into many generations of judges, eventually ending with King Saul and his successor, King David, all the while showing that their hearts were not unlike the sinful hearts of the pagan nations from which they all emerged uh, back in uh, Genesis 11. Now, after David, uh, after his son, came Solomon the king, and as soon as Solomon was done, a man who reigned in a bunch of sin, uh, as you probably know, uh, what happened then was that Israel was divided in two. Israel became the northern kingdom and Judah became the southern kingdom. And the north would be taken off into exile and largely would be lost to the Assyrian people. But then a new kingdom would arise and overtake Assyria. And that kingdom was known as Babylon. And Judah would become what's called a vassal state of Babylon under the rule of Babylon and the great king at the time, Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar was the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you might be reeling with all this information, thinking, why on earth do I have to know all this? Well, just bear with me a little bit longer. As we will see, many of the nobles at this point in time, when Nabopolassar and his son Nebuchadnezzar, who was acting as prince regent, coming and conquering the people in his name, as these two were coming, they would take many of the nobles away to Babylon in exile while others were left behind as slaves uh, to kind of fend for themselves and exist in a puppet kingdom, the governing ruler of the uh, Babylonians uh, became this man named Jehoiakim, who we see right there in Daniel chapter 1. The Babylonians chose to put in place this man uh, as exactly that, a puppet who would do what they say. And so at this point, Judah was really no longer its own. It wasn't operating under the authority of God. It was operating under the authority of Babylon. The historical books that we have in the Bible speak of this event, and you can read it on your own in 2 Kings 24 uh, and in 2 Chronicles 36. Now, we're not going to go through 2 Kings 24, but let's take a look really quickly at 2 Chronicles 36. Why don't you turn there with me in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36, starting in verse 1. It says, the people of the land, this is Judah, took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. So even before Babylon comes in, Egypt is making Judah to be a puppet nation. We'll go into that in depth 
in future weeks. If you don't love history, uh, Daniel will make you love history because there's such a tight connection to historical events. And so this king of Egypt, known as Pharaoh Necho, we know now by archaeology, he changed this man's name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar uh, also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. So only a few years after he was put in place, Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar, as the general in the place of his father, attacked Jerusalem and leveled it, wiped it out. And as an act of final defiance toward the God of Israel, temple instruments were taken from the temple, things that they used to practice in worship of Yahweh. They were taken back to Babylon and most likely placed in the temple of their God, known as Marduk, their principal God. And this was as if to say that Yahweh was now subservient to Marduk. We'll look at other examples of this similar activity uh, in the Old Testament as we go. Now, why do I give you all this background? You can click back in if you've zoned out because you're not a his history buff with me. Uh, why do I give you all this background? Well, first of all, context is extremely important, as I've said many, many times, for us to understand what's going on. But secondly, because there is a massive biblical theme that needs to be understood by any serious student of the Bible. Babylon, or the land of Shinar as it's called, is used throughout the Bible as a type, a model of wickedness, and a place where mankind is reduced to their most beastly urges. Now, this idea of beasts will be prominent in Daniel, individually and nationally. In Genesis 11, as we looked at earlier, Babylon is seen as the height of opposition against God and defiance against his authority. God, in his mercy and grace and sovereignty, calls a man named Abram out of that people to leave. He leaves that language, that culture, and that worship to follow Yahweh. And this is a prototype for every person who is called out of the kingdom of darkness to walk in the kingdom of light with Christ. Abram left Babylon to worship Yahweh and to do so by faith. But because of the blindness and spiritual dullness of his offspring, over generations, they slowly but surely found their way back to the place of Shinar. But now, as we'll see in Daniel, they found themselves as exiles, enslaved in the consequences of their sin. This is an amazing thematic picture for us to understand as Christians. Maybe you are part of a family where generations ago someone was called out of their family, out of their sin, to follow Christ. And now, generations later, you find that your family is in no better space. They're back in the place of Babylon. They're back in the place of sin. And this is of the utmost importance for us. Even if that isn't our exact situation, it may seem very relevant for us. Because as we unravel the true meaning of Daniel and its main points over the coming months we're going to see that the land of Shinar, in particular Babylon, is the place where wickedness dwells in opposition to God. A more clear picture of the embodied kingdom of darkness could not be produced. 
And so what Daniel will present to us is the harsh reality that we, as Christians, live as exiles in a land that is not our own amidst the people that do not share the same worship we do. We are exiles among the kingdom of darkness. And as Christians, we know, just like it was for them, this can be very disheartening. But as we will see with Daniel and his three compatriots, we do not have to be afraid, we don't have to fear, nor do we have to compromise to the spirits of the age. In fact, we exist within and among, but not of this world. We rise above it. We, like them, can stand firm in the knowledge that God is indeed sovereign, even when it doesn't look like it or feel like it, and that he will be faithful to his people to accomplish his divine salvation. We can stand firm in the knowledge that God and his people will be victorious even when we are surrounded by the beastly kingdoms of the world and the chaos that they cause. We may not be in the exact same predicament here in 2021 that Daniel was back then, but man, this is very relevant for us today. Now, this will require us to lay down some of our strong presuppositions. We will need to lay aside the false comfort we have in the idea that because we are citizens of the United States, that we are innately in God's grace and favor. This is a falsity. It is is totally wrong. And we'll see in Daniel that even though Daniel was a citizen of Babylon, he was far different. He did not rely upon that. This book will cause us to greatly examine our nationalistic and political loyalties, and recognize that God's people are a people in exile no matter where they are or when they are, strange and different to any earthly culture in which we find ourselves. And perhaps this is why we are called by the Apostle Peter, and uh, exiles, and told by him to conduct ourselves in the fear of God throughout our time in exile. This makes a lot of sense when you start to view the church, even the church in the United States, and the Western world as faithful followers of Christ in exile. Just as the truly faithful of Israel, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah find themselves in exile among a kingdom that is not their own and yet stay faithful, you and I are called to identify the world in which we find ourselves as contrary to God and yet stay faithful in the midst of it. The context is of ultimate importance for us to grasp the full weight of this book. If not, if we go into Daniel, as I'll talk about in a second, thinking of it as a Bible code that will give us a timeline of when Jesus will return, we are going to miss the most important piece of what Daniel is for. And it's because this book is so very important in this understanding of being exiles in a foreign world, so to speak, that we must be ready to defend it. Because you see, out of all the books of the Bible, it could be argued that Daniel has received more criticism than any other book. It has been um, undercut more than any other book in the Bible. But what I want to show you this morning, uh, what I hope to show you even in this uh, section this morning, is that the criticism of Daniel speaks to its importance. The criticism of Daniel speaks to its importance. Now, many of you may not even know that this exists, that there's criticism of Daniel. You may not care. You may think that's in the Bible. I'm going to just go with it. But the more you study, 
the more you will see that across the last, especially 300 years, Daniel has tried to be undercut by many scholars and many people who do what's called biblical criticism or literary criticism. And so I want to empower you to understand this so that you're not shaken if you do come across some of that as you study Daniel along with us. Now, just as in the garden, we know that the one who comes to lie and steal and kill and destroy, the adversary of God, he loves to discredit God's word. And so a quick survey of the history of scholarship around Daniel will show that it has been criticized and critiqued greatly, all to devalue its message and make it of no import. But I'd like to propose to you that it's exactly because of this history of criticism that we can know how very important the book actually is. Now, almost every book of the Bible has come under criticism. When we went through Isaiah, we talked about that. Uh, This idea that uh, these books that predict the future or foretell events, they just can't be true. But Daniel has received the lion's share of the criticism. That's a really bad Daniel pun if you're paying attention. The lion's share, get it? Daniel in the lion's den. It's really sad to not have more laughter here. The amount of criticism uh, over the years has even caused one theologian to write a book entitled Daniel in the Critic's Den. And this is important for us to understand as we move into this book. We need an apologetic to support it. Again, you may say, I don't need to be an apologist. I don't need to know this but I want to give it to you because to not do so would be, uh, it would be pastoral um, uh, avoidance. It would not be appropriate for me to not give you the information you need. And so we're going to look at the evidence, I believe, that shows that this book can be trusted as we look at each of the main criticisms. Now, traditionally, and for most of history up until the early 1700s, The book of Daniel was thought to be written by the prophet Daniel in the 6th century BC. There was no debate about it. That's just what was believed. But with the advent of biblical criticism, a new idea began to take hold and was very prominent in the 1800s and into the early 1900s. That it was, in fact, written by someone other than Daniel, possibly multiple parties, during the 2nd century BC, around the time of what's called the Maccabean Revolt. Now, the primary reasoning behind this assertion was that the foretelling of prophecy, as I mentioned earlier, throughout much of the books concerning, uh, throughout much of the book concerning worldly kingdoms, primarily Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, and Rome, was too exacting for it to be written hundreds of years before. It therefore must require a later date so that the author could take on the name Daniel to give himself credit. Uh, and our credibility, and in essence, uh, basically state the past that was already known as prophecy to rally the hearts of Israelites going, uh, undergoing persecution from the enemy um, armies that were descending upon them. And so this was the idea that was put forth in order to describe away or explain away in human terms why these prophecies were so dead on. Now, secondarily, critics during the 1700s and 1800s would argue that based on the knowledge of the day, and even based against other biblical texts and internal evidence, that the historical facts of Daniel were off, and so we need to just discredit the book and not pay attention to it. Third, to make the muddy waters uh, uh, even more muddy, the Catholic canon has additions to the book that are not contained in our Protestant canon. If any of you grew up with a Catholic Bible in your home and you go to read what's in it versus what's in our Protestant copy, you'll say, wait a minute, why is there a difference? Uh, What's in the Catholic edition that is not in the Protestant is what's called the Prayer of Azariah, 
uh, the song of three young men, uh, Susanna and Belle and the Dragon. Now, for all these reasons, great skepticism has swirled around the book of Daniel and its use and application in the everyday Christian's life. But let me walk through each of these in a bit of quick apologetic study to equip you with the information you need to know that you can trust this book and look to it for wisdom as we go through it in the weeks and months ahead. Let me look at it in reverse order. I'm going to take each of those criticisms I just talked about and hit each one of them in reverse order. First, the reason that we don't have the additional apocryphal text that the Catholic Church does is that unlike in the 1700s and 1800s, we now have access to uh, older Hebrew-Aramaic texts, original language texts, from manuscripts and fragments found in the caves of Qumran, otherwise known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. When we look at those Hebrew and Aramaic texts, we do not find these additional sections that I just outlined. Where we do find them is in what's called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was translated in Alexandria, Egypt. We can therefore assume that these stories originated not in Israel at the same time as the rest of the book of Daniel, but they were additions that were written outside of Israel and added later. And so that's why we don't continue to use them in the Protestant canon. They're still great to read in terms of understanding the literature of the day that they were written, but they're not to be used as inspired texts. Second, we now have the blessing of archaeology that was not present during the days of intense biblical criticism. For example, the discovery of what are called cuneiform tablets, or tablets that were written at the uh, time of the Babylonian kingdom, and writings called the Babylonian Chronicles, give evidence and backing to the series of events that Daniel lays out. Those archaeological finds basically say, Daniel's actually right. There is no problem with what he says. This led a commentator in 1927, J.A. Montgomery, to state that archaeology has inspired a considerable revival of the defense of the authenticity of this book. So by 1927, they were already starting to rethink all this biblical criticism and saying, oh no, the traditional way of viewing Daniel is actually correct. Now lastly, let's deal with this topic of the idea of if it was written in the 6th century by a guy named Daniel or the 2nd century by someone else. Let me list for you the reasons why we can feel confident in a date of writing of that 6th century BC and the authorship of Daniel the prophet. First of all, there's what's called contemporary insight. The author of Daniel seems to have amazing insight into the Babylonian and Persian royal court proceedings, as well as the order of events that led from one king uh, and their downfall to another king's ascension. And this would back a 6th century date. There's no way 400 years removed that this person who wasn't involved could have these same understandings of what happened in those courts. Remember, they didn't have the internet. Uh, most people barely had access to the ability to read and to any other previous historical records. And so Daniel would have had to have been present to know what was going on. Secondly, we have manuscript evidence. The manuscripts and fragments found at the Dead Sea Qumran Caves were written sometime between the 2nd century and 1st century. It would have been almost impossible for a 2nd century writing to have gained enough credibility and veneration within such a short time period to have been included in the scrolls of Qumran. In other words, they showed such veneration to the text, most likely it was a far older text that would have gained that veneration over time. Third, we look to Orthodox tradition. 
The 2,400-year-old tradition of the church and the synagogue holds to an early date of Daniel. Why would we dismiss that? This idea was basically the consensus up until we thought better in the 1700s, using our, uh, to coin a C.S. Lewis term, or to use a C.S. Lewis term, our chronological snobbery that we knew better at the time of the 1700s than the 1700 previous years of evidence. Next, we can look at the archaeological evidence. As stated before, archaeological evidence found in the last hundred years backs an earlier date of writing. It backs the 6th century date. Fifth, as we'll see more and more as we go through the book, we can look to the linguistic evidence. The language and the linguistic structure speak to an earlier date and a single author. The Persian expressions found in the book point to what's called Old Persian, which would have been back in the 6th century, and it would have only come from writing at that time. Additionally, the linguistic structure, as I will show you next week, speaks to its unified message and single author. Now, if these aren't enough for you, we've got two more. Sixth is credibility from the Old Testament. Ezekiel, the 6th century prophet, spoke of Daniel three times within his prophecies and gives credibility to him as a real historic person. Uh, look at this from Ezekiel 14, 12 through 14. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. And so, in this book of Ezekiel, Daniel is a real historic person. And Ezekiel, as well, was written at an earlier date uh, that far preceded the second century B.C., most importantly, and I think that this is the one that we can really seal the deal on, is the fact that we get credibility for Daniel from the New Testament, especially even in the use of uh, Daniel by our Lord. So Christ considered him a real historical person who was given divine revelation and believed in Daniel's ability to foretell the future. We see this in Matthew 24, for example. Matthew 24, 15 through 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation, Spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm prone to believe the one who resurrected from the dead over and above all the literary critics who did no such thing. And so the reality is, is this is the proof that we have that we can trust Daniel and have strong confidence in the book's reliability. I could spend hours going further in depth on the reliability of this book. I've actually barely touched the surface on these things. But even then, dear friends, I can honestly say that if someone were to give new evidence and, and prove to me that it was the later writing in the second century BC, I would not be shaken in my faith or my use of this book as part of that faith. Why? Well, because, number three, in reading Daniel, we must be careful to not make primary what the author makes secondary. In reading Daniel, we must be careful to not make primary what the author makes secondary. One of the main reasons that there is fear around this book being invalidated is that this book, as we will see, is really the cornerstone and foundation of what's called the premillennial and pre-tribulation views of the end of days. Uh, this may not be something you're familiar with. If you don't know what those terms mean, you can think left behind series, rapture, tribulation, these kinds of things. 
Now, the whole book, and specifically Daniel 9, 24 through 27, otherwise known to many as Daniel's 70 weeks, is used to back what's called a quote-unquote literal use of the numbers in that prophecy to fit a system describing a secret rapture of the church and a seven-year tribulation. Now, if you are to um, basically remove that as the foundation, the entire system of the rapture and the eschatology around it falls apart. And so many people over the last 200 years have been very worried about uh, making sure that we prove the traditional view of Daniel. Now, I know that this is how some of you, if not many of you watching, and maybe even the few people in this room, that you have learned this book, and it may be what you hold to even after we go through it, and that's okay. It's not a completely errant um, uh, theology that's going to get you in a bad place with Christ. It's a secondary issue. And so if you hold on to the premillennial pre-trib view with the rapture and all of the, the fixings along with it after we're done with Daniel, you and I can still have coffee, we can still rejoice in Jesus together, and that's okay. But what I want to submit to you at the outset is that to put too much emphasis on this one portion of Daniel, from Daniel 9, without viewing it in the context of the greater message of the book is extremely unwise. A great commentator of the last century on Daniel named Joyce Baldwin said this, the fact that the standpoint of the writer, whether it's in the 2nd or the 6th century BC, cannot be ascertained for certain does not greatly affect the interpretation. In other words, the main points do not change depending upon where in time the authorship is. The reason she could state this is because the goal of the prophecies was not to point to worldly kingdoms and their timelines. That was not the main focus. Even though it's a ton of content, as I'll show you, it wasn't the focus. What was the focus was the Messiah, and his eventual rule over the nations. And this is the problem, is that oftentimes when teaching or reading or studying Daniel, we get stuck in all of the secondary events of when this kingdom will rise or who the Antichrist is or how can we pick out if this is the tribulation or not. Those are all secondary issues to one key truth. And that is, is that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be victorious over the nations. And it doesn't matter how you interpret the numbers, that is the truth of Daniel, and to lose that fact is to lose the entirety of the book. And so even with this timeline that I've presented up on the screen for you, even if it were the 6th century BC that it was written, or the 2nd century BC, in either case, it's still prophetic of the Messiah that would come, named Jesus, who would minister, die, resurrect, become enthroned, and ascend into heaven and is going to come again to judge the living and the dead. That doesn't change. And so we, not being so focused on that premillennial piece, that rapture piece, we can be focused instead on the fact that we know that our King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be victorious. And that is where the security and safety and comfort of Daniel comes from. The book of Revelation tells us clearly that prophecy is not important in of, of its own right. To become too focused on all these prophetic things, we might as well just go read the inquirer in line at the grocery store or go and talk to a fortune teller. If that's what you want to focus on, it's no different than those things. What we are focused on is what the Bible tells us is the important piece of prophecy. In Revelation 19.10, an angel tells, tells John, the revelator, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
I've heard other teachers teach this, and they'll emphasize this point and then spend an hour or two hours going into all the secondary prophecies and why it's so important to pay attention to the news. We need to stay focused on this fact, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is only important inasmuch as it points to the culmination of God's redemptive work, Jesus Christ. When we lose that focus, we run into two major concerns. What history has shown us across the church is that we can delude ourselves into thinking we are still focused on Christ when we start making predictions and trying to fit current events into biblical prophecy. What we are doing, in fact, is damaging the witness of Christ when we do so. It makes us out to be fools to the world, and in so doing, takes the focus off of the messianic truth of books like Daniel. A great example that is still a blemish on the face of American Christianity happened in the 1800s when William Miller, a Baptist lay preacher, began postulating that Christ would return in 1843 based upon numbers found in the book of Daniel. He developed a large following across the country, and when the day came and went that he had predicted, he said, no, actually, and this is always the case, I actually misunderstood the dates, and so let's push it forward to October 22nd, 1844. When Christ did not return on that date, he was labeled a failure, and it was entitled The Great Disappointment. You can go look it up online. This errant theology and misunderstanding of the whole point of Daniel gave room to other errant theologies that still plague orthodox beliefs today from groups such as Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the overall Bible student movement from which both came about. We can also talk of more contemporary examples, such as Harold Camping, who less than 10 years ago was seen on billboards and heard on radios saying that Jesus would return in 2011. And he largely based his calculations on, guess what? The book of Daniel. Now, secondarily, not only do we show ourselves to be fools to the world, but we make a mockery of good biblical scholarship. As I've tried to teach you throughout the years, the best way to interpret Scripture is to figure out what the original author was trying to say to the original audience, using context of grammar, the text itself, theology, uh, the Bible itself, and historical context. Now, this is called exegesis or exposition. It's exposing what's in the text. It's taking the text and exposing what's already in it. Unfortunately, this is not the method that has popularly been used on Daniel. Instead, people like Miller and Camping take a presupposition, usually based on the self-concerned idea that they must be in the generation that sees Christ return, and then they force that upon the text. Uh, Realize that we are doing just that when we say, this has to be the generation where Jesus returns because I'm in it. We've now made ourselves the center of the text and of eschatology rather than the truth, which is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. This method has been used on Daniel 9 for so long that it led one commentator at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the same one I quoted earlier, James Allen Montgomery, to say that the history of Daniel 9's prophecies and interpretation is, and I quote, the dismal swamp of critical exegesis. When we take an already formed idea and impose that upon the text to make it fit, the idea that our current president is the Antichrist or not, or the idea that current conflict with current nations has to be what the Bible is talking about, this is what's called eisegesis. And it's an extremely unwise way to interpret communication of any sort. It shows more about our agendas and biases than about the word of God. 
Think about how well it's worked out for you when you impose your interpretation on the communication of a spouse or a friend without first finding out what they intended. How well has that worked out for you? Now, this is what we do when we impose current events onto biblical texts. We make a fool of ourselves before we even begin. But this is what we've seen across history. To the Essenes, the Roman government was the final beastly kingdom. They were wrong. Those in Germany at the time of Emperor Frederick I's death saw Germany as the kingdom that would never be shaken and would last for eternity. They were wrong. During the Reformation, Luther first declared the papacy as the beastly kingdom and the pope as the Antichrist, but then changed his view when the Muslim Turks invaded Europe and Muhammad became the Antichrist. Scottish reformer John Knox agreed that the papacy was the beast. Sir Thomas Cromwell, an English reformer, used the language of Daniel to condemn his enemies and his critics. Sir Isaac Newton was known for using the politics of the day as a filter to view the events of Daniel. Current end times theology that can still be found in churches that make a habit of trying to find how current events fit into apocalyptic texts find their origin in a movement from the late 1800s called Darbyism in which there was a massive movement to try and find European and American history in the Bible. Well, it wasn't there, and it's still not there. And this led, as we will see, into a new kind of theology called dispensationalism that is very much mainstream in evangelical Christianity today and led to books like The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey in the 1970s and the Left Behind series in the 1990s and 2000s. All of these have one thing in common. They are incorrect in their prognostications. I do not bring up these examples to shame or condemn any of these people or to fault anyone who stands in the dispensational camp. There are people far smarter than me in that camp and people that I respect and trust in that camp. Some of these people I've even listed, uh, most of Christendom and myself still consider giants of the faith that far surpass any of our own faith. I simply point to them to give us pause so that we are not so quick to force current events into the text that never intended us to do so. How many times do we as Christians need to make the same foolish mistake showing ourselves as fools to the world before we'll stop and think about whether or not we're honoring Christ in doing so? Could it be that in spending so much time focusing on the secondary support that we have missed the main point of the book and the passage? That it refers to the salvation, ascension, and enthronement achieved by one that will one day rule over the nations. We are so focused on figuring out what's in the future that we forget to focus on the truth of what we should focus on, Jesus Christ, dead, resurrected, and ascended, sitting as our king on a throne today. Tremper Longman, one of the foremost commentators on Daniel, says it this way. He says, It is important to state it again, to say that Daniel, while giving us the good news that God will come again, is not telling us when. To rehearse a few of the most notable examples of this kind of misuse and remind us of the many, many other times around the world this biblical material has been so abused should inoculate us against what will surely be attempts in the future to misuse Daniel and other similar portions of Scripture. As we progress through Daniel, I and any of the other elders that will teach will do our best to exposit the prophetic texts but we will do so in a way that supports the primary thematic elements of Daniel, not in a way that competes with them and, and pushes them aside. And that is where we're going to land today with the primary themes 
which I have summarized as this. Daniel is a beacon of hope to a weary people. This is where we'll finish up. The hope found in Daniel is not a hidden Bible code that reveals the date and time for a future event. It is a reliance upon very strong principles that should sustain us when we find ourselves in chaos, under oppression or persecution, or realize that we are truly a holy people in exile among the kingdom of darkness. I hold to and will teach from the traditional historical perspective that the book was written by Daniel in the 6th century B.C., And it was written to whom Daniel calls in chapter 12 the wise or the masculine. These are those who understand that they are God's people operating in exile and looking for the coming of the kingdom of God. It was to these faithful that God was communicating these major truths that I'm about to share with you. And you can write them down here if you're taking notes. Three truths that I think are the major themes of Daniel. And notice that a prophetic foretelling of a certain event in the future is not one of them. First, no matter the chaos or difficulty, no matter what's going on in our lives, God will have the final victory over the sin that has made us beasts rather than image bearers of God. Secondly, Daniel was intended to give us the truth that true followers of God can survive and even thrive in a world opposed to our faith. It should not shock us when the world is opposed to our faith and how we respond to it. Daniel gives us a great example. We just need to realize in those moments as Daniel and his compatriots did who we belong to. And both of these, the first two, are based upon the fact that third, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, fulfilled God's redemptive plan when he came as a man, died in our place, redeemed us from our sin, and resurrected in victory. And because of this, the very hope that Daniel was looking to, not only the redemption of the people of Israel, but as Daniel 9 talks about, the end of all transgression. This was fulfilled and solidified in our Savior and Lord, Jesus the Christ. All we need to do now is trust that he, as we read in our earlier psalm, is our fortress, And we await his second coming, whenever that will be. It is for these reasons that I believe Daniel is a beacon of hope to a weary people. And so in the coming weeks and months as we go into this, uh, I will hopefully not have to pack as much information into one teaching as I did today. But I hope that this has opened up your eyes a bit to the fact that Daniel is a rich book that we're going to go through and we're going to gain a lot from. Yes, in terms of looking at history and seeing its prophetic intent but more so looking to it to see it as a beacon of hope to a weary people. And folks, I know uh, that given the last year, many of you are weary. And so we rejoice in the fact that we can gain this hope today. I hope that Daniel will be the same beacon for each of you as it is to me.